0: The following episode is part one of a two-part series we're doing with telescope maker Jerry Oltian. We had a great time chatting with Jerry, and so we're putting out two episodes. The Astronomer's Workbench with Jerry old on episode 341 of the actual astronomy podcast i'm chris and joining me is shane we are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky and this podcast is for everybody who likes going out under the stars so uh guys what i'll do first is i'll just read a quick bio of jerry and then we will chat jerry old has been a gardener stonemason carpenter oiled field worker, forester, land surveyor, rock and roll, DJ, printer, proofreader, editor, publisher, computer consultant, movie extra. I want to know more about that. Corporate secretary, <laughs> yeah. magazine columnist, and garbage truck driver. Can't do anything with the garbage trucks driver. And he also writes science fiction with 15 novels and over 150 stories published so far. He also writes a regular column for the magazine of fantasy and science fiction and since we have many listeners who are science fiction fans we hope you'll check him out and his works out on amazon jerry became a regular columnist for sky and telescope magazine he writes a column called the astronomer's workbench featuring homemade astronomy equipment of all types from simple accessories to complete telescopes as a telescope maker jerry caught many readers attention when he built the world's largest astro scan welcome to the show jerry great to have you on this evening
1: no, oh, thank you for having me. This is going to be fun.
0: <laughs> yeah, I hope uh, I hope you enjoyed it. I I think this this is going to be a blast. You're sort of one of our special guests because we're we're doing this on a Thursday evening, and typically we don't record on Thursday evenings. But um, when you were recommended to us and and passed along, uh, we thought, oh, we have to we have to get this in before we get in into the summer hiatus. So
1: uh, you. Well, you you picked a good time because. Uh, yeah, you know, this week I've actually got some time. <laughs> I'm starting into a house painting project, and uh, boy, I think the next two or three weeks are going to be very, really, very busy. <laughs>
2: mm, house oh. painting? What what are you doing when you're done your project?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, you know, I don't have any mirrors. Uh, uh, you know, I don't have any telescope projects going right now, so it's like, you know, Kathy and I are like, well, maybe we should paint
0: the house. So, you know, <laughs> keeps us busy, right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Very good. Hey, before we get going, we should do a quick shout out to Mel Bartels for connecting us with you. And you actually bought Mel's TriDub. Do I have that right? I did, yeah. Um, can, you, can you tell us about that telescope and how it's worked out for you? Do you still own it? And, yeah, I,
1: I do. I still own it. I still use it quite a lot. I think, let's see, I bought it in, I think, 2010. Um, what happened is uh, we inherited a little bit of money. You know, not enough to like buy a boat or a car, but it was just about enough to buy a big telescope. <laughs> and uh, I uh, I told Mel that I was looking for probably something in a 20-inch uh, telescope range. And uh, he said, well, why don't you buy my scope? And I, it, it never occurred to me that he would ever part with that because he used to brag that up as uh, probably one of the most perfect mirrors uh, ever made. You know, he worked on it and worked on it and worked on it until it was just yeah. stunningly perfect. And uh, wow, yeah. And then he offered to sell it to me, and I asked him, "Why in the world would you would you sell that scope?" And he said, "Because I want to build a bigger one."
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's always the reason for selling. I want a bigger <laughs> That's
1: <right>. one. <laughs> That's right. He wanted to build a bigger one, and um, you know, so uh, it was funny. We sat down and haggled over the price, and we. We achieved the um, sale price when we both were kind of wincing about equally, you know. Um, Mel was thinking, oh, the, I'm I'm basically selling you the mirror and giving you the telescope. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm thinking, no, I'm buying a pretty expensive mirror here, you know. <laughs> Buddha wouldn't charge me this much for a mirror. But <laughs> on the other hand, it, it's a fabulous telescope. And the neat thing about it is... Um, at the time i was driving a 2001 volkswagen beetle and the telescope collapses down and fits in a vw beetle you know there's not wow. very many that not very many 20 inch telescopes will do that
2: that's wild no gee that's and then, incredible
1: and the kicker is man i get that thing out in the field um you know I i drive an hour or so out of town to get into some good dark sky and i have probably the best 20 inch telescope ever <laughs> you know i mean that mirror star tests perfectly. Um, nice. yeah, I've never been able to find any defect in it, uh, in a star test. And it shows me that Chris, does wonderful images. Um, so
0: you're, the only thing it didn't, Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say you're in Oregon as well. And so, um, are you going out to the, do you go to the Oregon uh, star party? Oh so yeah. I yeah. Yeah. Okay.
1: Although I, I haven't been in recent years. Um, well, you know, they, they haven't, they haven't been holding it in recent years, but, uh, they're holding it again this year. And I do plan to go.
2: Excellent.
3: And
1: and I often take that scope. Um, you know, I've got other scopes that, uh, that I also kind of like to show off. So uh, some years I don't take that when I take uh, like my binocular scope or what have you, but uh, I'll tell you what, every year when I do get up there with that 20 inch job, um, Two in the morning, there's still a line of people waiting to look through that scope. it, I it bet. is bet. It, it is a, it's a, at least a regional legend, you know. And I feel kind of weird having purchased a legend. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, um, I was in the right place at the right time and knew the right people, I guess. Um, the oh. only thing that that scope did not do uh, is it didn't track. It, uh, you know, Mel, he'd had that mirror at one time in a telescope that was computer controlled. Um, but then he uh, decided to go for portability. And so he built this tri-dob and so it didn't track. And uh, I had gotten used to tracking telescopes. And so I kind of tried to figure out how could I make this thing track? And I came up with a new design for an equatorial platform that uses the ground ring of the telescope as the rigid part of the equatorial platform. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, very, very small um little t-shaped uh platform underneath that that holds the uh, drive electronics and the rollers and stuff and so it only added about four inches to the height of that telescope and uh and now i've got a a 20 inch scope that tracks so wow yeah it's a dream scope i
0: gotta tell you
2: yeah that sounds incredible
0: so we get i gotta ask you about being a dj tell us about being a radio (laughs) dj (laughs)
1: Well, that was a long time ago. That was back when Kathy and I lived in Cody, Wyoming.
0: Okay. Um,
1: yeah, we moved there in 1980, 81, somewhere back in there. And uh, Wyoming at the time didn't have any FM radio stations at all. And then they put one in in Casper, which is like 200, 300 miles away. And then they put one in in Cody. Uh, you know, some rich guy, he named it after himself. His name was Taggart. And so it was KTAG. Uh, and, uh, right and uh, I I had uh, you know I'd been working and helping put Kathy through school and then when she graduated as a medical technologist she got a job in the Cody Hospital Laboratory so I didn't have to work I I started writing but I started feeling guilty about not not pulling in any cash you know when when you start as a writer it takes several years to really build up any kind of uh reputation where you can actually sell anything yeah um so i was looking for work and uh i was listening to this radio station and you know i thought you know the djs aren't really very good and uh, (laughs) and my dad was a a ham radio operator so i was familiar with microphones and stuff and i I didn't you know i didn't clam up on the air so uh, i just drove down there one day and banged on the door and they let me in and i and oh, the funny part is that as I was as I was driving in, somebody nearly hit me in the parking lot. They were burning rubber on the way out and <laughs> nearly crashed into me on the way out. And so I parked my car and, and went inside and, and uh, the, the receptionist asked, uh, you know, what they could do for me. And I said, well, I'm looking for a job uh, as a DJ. And they just all cracked up. And I thought, well, what what's so funny about me wanting a job, you know? I know I'm funny looking, but it's radio. It doesn't matter. (laughs) (laughs)
0: uh, Yeah, I'm a face for radio too. That's why we do a podcast.
1: That's it. Nobody knows what I look like yet. But but uh, they were laughing because the guy who nearly hit me in the parking lot had just been fired. Oh. He was the the DJ that I thought wasn't very good. (laughs) (laughs) So so they... uh, they took me into the production studio and had me do like five minutes of just fake introducing songs and reading a news item or something you know and and hired me on the spot
3: that's and awesome
1: I, yeah it was so fun um i was doing like the the seven to midnight show the, the late
3: show yeah
1: um which worked out really well because my wife was working the late uh, the, the oh, evening okay. shift at the at the lab and and, oh, cool. you know, so we've been evening people ever since, you know, we get up nice. at 10 in, the, 10 in the morning and go to bed at two in the morning. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I got to ask, what movie were you an extra in? Oh, um, what was that called? It was called The Four Diamonds
1: okay. and it was, it was filmed here in Eugene, um, Oregon. That's where I live. And yep. uh, uh, Eugene is kind of a place where old hippies go to retire.
3: Yeah. And so
1: <laughs> this movie was set in the early seventies. And so they filmed it in Eugene because they didn't have to get a lot of extras to wear tie-dye. It's like everybody, goes, look at this. See, I'm wearing tie-dye right now. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So, uh, and I had a friend who was on, on the uh, set. He was one of the, um, oh, what do you call it? A grip. He's one of the guys okay. that, you know, gets the sets, uh, gets the props uh, and, and stuff. And he knew that they were doing a casting call for extras and, uh, so he uh, told me I should run down there and, and uh, you know, put my name in the in hat. And he said, you know, you already dress like a hippie, but, uh, you know, put on your bell bottoms and your earth shoes, too, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and so I did. I did that. And uh, <laughs> it was so funny when the casting director looked at me. He just looked at me and kind of looked me up and down. And then he said, you can't fool me. You wear that stuff all the time, don't you? <laughs> 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 it's like, yeah, Guilty. <laughs> i grew up in wyoming and you know i was kind of a redneck out there and when we moved to eugene i just totally moved to the left and embraced the tie-dye hippie culture <laughs>
2: so, you know, that's great
1: I, I always say that the the, the 60s were like pre for a football game back in wyoming
3: uh,
1: <laughs> so i didn't get much chance to live through the 60s but i do it again out here <laughs> but I I wasn't like a major uh, player in the uh, in the movie. They really what they wanted was my uh, 69 Volkswagen Beetle. Oh, right. Actually it's my wife's Beetle. She had that before she had me. Uh so uh, yeah, there's a lot of scenes in there where there's uh, cars going by. And uh, that 69 Beetle is one of them. And so you don't see Kathy or me much, but uh, you see our car.
0: <laughs> and that's the, it's a, it's a purple Beetle, if I'm remembering correctly. It,
1: uh, kind of a bright blue. yeah.
0: Bright blue. Okay. Yeah.
1: We're, we're in the midst of restoring the interior this year. We, we had, we've got the exterior pretty well churned out and, uh, but you know, the seat covers are terrible and all uh, oh, well, the carpet's terrible. So we're redoing the interior
3: now.
0: Nice.
1: It's funny, you know, driving that thing around town, especially in a hippie town, whenever I stop long enough to uh, for somebody to run up and ask what year it is and that, everybody has a Volkswagen Beetle story. And everybody yeah. has to tell it to you
3: because <laughs>
1: they haven't seen anybody else driving a Beetle for years. You know, there's only about a dozen of them left in running order.
0: Yeah. <laughs> All right. Maybe uh, I'll sort of pass the reins over to Shane for a bit if you're up for uh, kind of taking us on Jerry's astronomy journey a bit.
2: So, Jerry, how did you first get into astronomy? Uh, What was was the first kind of interest there for you?
1: Um, It it came in two stages. When I was um, young, like uh, before my teenagers, I was probably seven or eight years old, my older brother... got a six inch, uh, gosh, it was a criterion. I think it is on uh, one of those long F10 mm. criterions on the equatorial mount. Um, he got one of those. And so I was able to look through that on occasion and, uh, I, you know, learned my way around the sky a little bit. Um, you know, then he went off to college and, uh, I wasn't quite old enough to run the scope by myself. Then I went off to college. So I kind of got out of it. um, But as a science fiction writer, I was always still interested in astronomy and, uh, you know, and astrophysics and cosmology and all of that. So uh, let's see, it would have been the year of uh, 2003 after Kathy and I moved to Eugene. um, On Christmas, we were talking about, uh, you know, what are we going to get each other for Christmas? And we couldn't think of anything. And uh, we thought, thought, well, why don't we just get a gift for the us? And uh, we started kicking around ideas and we came up with a telescope. And I thought, yeah, you know, that could be kind of fun. So we bought this eight inch um, again, it was a Newtonian scope on a big old equatorial mount, a conus. It was a knockoff of the Celestron C8. And uh, you know, it was a great uh, introductory scope, but after we got uh, got used to it, we realized, you know the images weren't very good, it was kind of fuzzy, and um, turned out it was a really crappy telescope. <laughs> but we didn't know uh, yeah. but we we joined the astronomy club here in town and uh, we started learning the difference between a good telescope and a bad um, and in a way I'm kind of glad we got a lousy telescope to start with because it taught us a lot more about optics you know trying to figure out what was wrong with it, it taught us a lot about optics mm-hmm. and uh, you know parabolic mirrors versus spherical mirrors and stuff like that so uh you know, I, I think I came out ahead for having a lousy telescope. And the interesting <laughs> bit is the mail order place that uh, sold it to me, I finally got the courage to call them up and ask if they would take it back. And the woman there just laughed and laughed and laughed. And she said, you're the last one. I was wondering if you were going to call. And she said, everybody else we sold one of those telescopes to has returned it. <laughs> 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 so it was six for six, she said, after I called.
2: Well, that, and, uh, that's quite telling.
1: <laughs> yeah. And uh, they replaced it with a Celestron version of the same scope. And uh, I think I paid an extra 50 bucks or so to, uh, to help cover shipping or what have you. And uh, that's a scope that we still use, but um, I've turned it into a Dobsonian. I just don't much care for equatorial mounts. So I've got it sitting at the edge of my garage where I can haul it out in the driveway. And, you know, in two minutes I can be observing.
2: Yeah, 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 that's great. Um, did you ever get into binoculars early on, or was it just kind of straight to the telescope and, and then, you know, carried on with that path?
1: It was straight to the telescope. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, we have binoculars, but I, I don't honestly recall ever really pointing them up at the sky uh, other than maybe Jupiter. I remember from my early days, I remember um, that we could see the moons of Jupiter. Uh, and so I would brace a pair of binoculars on the wall of the house or something and see if I could spot the moons. But um, that was probably the only thing I did with binoculars until several years after we got a telescope. Um, and, you know, I, I, think, I think it was a trip to Hawaii. We went to the island of Kauai and uh, uh, we met up with some astronomy people there. And I wanted to have at least something of my own optics. And so we bought a pair of binoculars there on the island. Mm. And uh, that was my first pair of astronomy binoculars. And they were just like 10 by 50s. But uh, the the Hawaiian uh, people there, uh, they showed us all sorts of cool stuff in the southern sky that we'd never seen before.
2: So oh, wow. that was fun. Yeah, that was yeah. a kick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Um, one one thing we've kind of found out, Chris and I, doing the podcast and and talking to uh, a well a number of different guests, seems like almost everybody has like a a telescope disaster story or or sort of something bad that maybe happened while observing. And just curious if you have a a telescope disaster story or or something bad that's maybe happened to one of your telescopes, uh, you know, at some point.
1: Actually, you know, I was thinking about that and. <laughs> You know, I, yes, I, I want to tell two stories. Okay. First, first is I'll tell, I'll tell the story about one of the things that happened to one of my telescopes. And this is, um, I built a travel scope that fits into a box that's only six inches high and 12 inches square, or 13, 12 and a half, something like that. Anyway, very small, like half a cubic foot. And it's a 10 inch or well nine and a half inch travel scope. It's pretty good size optics. Um, but, you know, you make some compromises on that. And one of them was that the uh, balance point was not in the middle of the altitude bearings. And so I was using bungees to uh, to balance the scope. But what that really means is when the scope is tilted toward the horizon, it is nose heavy. Even though the bungees are holding it from dropping down, you know, dropping the nose doesn't drop down. Um, that doesn't mean that the center of gravity is over the center of the base. And uh, I took a, let's see, did I... I, I, I was trying to remember, I think I put an eyepiece in and then I turned to look into my chart to, to find you know, where to look for this next object. And I heard a clunk behind me and then there was a pause and then there was this god awful crash. <laughs> and, and the last sound I heard of that crash was the rattly sound of a mirror hitting gravel no and, oh yes oh yes i could <laughs> i could hear my mirror and this is a mirror i made myself right and it was one of my best mirrors i was really proud of that mirror oh. and uh and i turned around and looked and sure enough the scope had had nosed over and fallen off the altitude bearings and just kept nosing right on over and it tipped upside down off the little table that it was on and crashed to the ground, and. Um, the impact busted the mirror clips and so the mirror fell out and it landed face down on the gravel and oh yeah this is it was just heartbreaking mm-hmm. but i very carefully picked up the mirror and looked at it and it was one tiny little <laughs> scratch like like somebody had shot a grain of sand at it right it was that was the smallest i mean that was the biggest damage on it was this tiny oh, little wow. grain of sand scratch and, you know, and I looked at the rest of the scope and nothing really was broken. The, the mirror clips were broken.
3: Right.
1: Uh, and uh, But everything was actually still functional. I was actually able to put it all back together and use it again that night. Oh. And, uh, but I learned to put some stops on the altitude bearing. So if the scope noses over, it uh, actually yeah. comes to a stop. And I also Smart. put a brake on it so that when I take an eyepiece out or put an eyepiece in, I can activate the brake and turn away in confidence <laughs> so yeah that's probably the worst disaster but uh, honestly you know nothing bad really happened it was just yeah. one of those moments where your heart's in your
3: chest you know
2: <laughs> <laughs> do do that a hundred times uh, and i'm pretty sure 99 of those times that mirror is in not very good shape <laughs> oh yeah
1: yeah I, I was pretty sure it was going to be in pieces when i turned around yeah and-
2: that's incredible
1: yeah. Uh, so the other the other story I want to tell you is what I did to a computer or to a um, telescope on purpose. And somebody donated a, a Bird Jones telescope. Oh yeah,
3: the,
1: yeah. You know about Bird Jones yeah. telescopes. That yeah. It's a grand idea. I don't want to disparage the concept because putting a corrector lens in front of a spherical mirror should work yeah and i and i think it probably does work if everything is collimated properly and you've got the right lenses and and, you know if it's done well it's probably a pretty good design but boys um manufacturers who remain nameless um are have been making these little crappy bird jones telescopes (laughs) and uh somebody donated it to the astronomy club because they couldn't get it to work and well big surprise The, the corrector lenses were not they weren't the right lenses um they weren't they weren't angled correctly and i started trying to fix this telescope and i finally realized you know other than just redesigning it from the bottom up and using the same tube uh, <laughs> there was there was really no fixing that telescope so instead what i did was i took the mirrors out because those could still be salvaged and then i jumped up and down on the tube <laughs> 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 and smashed it flat and uh, I'll tell you what, the only reason I regret doing that is because after the fact, somebody men- mentioned to me, well, you could have used it for a garbage can. And it's like, <laughs> okay, that would have been the most perfect way to use that bird Birdsharens telescope. <laughs> so... Honestly, I regret having smashed it, but uh, I do not regret having <laughs> removed it from the pool of possible telescopes. <laughs> I
0: didn't want to give it to Goodwill and then inflict it on somebody else. Um, you know, it, it'll just come back, like well, the CONUS, right? Like then oh, you'll, yeah. you'll have this person emailing you, say, hey, could you help me with the telescope? And then they they show up with it, right? <laughs> you know, every year in
1: uh, in January, our astronomy club has a telescope workshop where we invite the public to bring their telescopes and we'll help collimate them and line up their finders and stuff, you know? Well, one year somebody brought a scope that they got at Goodwill. And it was one of these uh, little mead uh, go-to scopes with a computer controller and all. And the electronics, surprise, surprise, the electronics actually worked, Mm -hmm. but uh, the scope would slew about halfway around and then just stop. And you could hear the motors moving and that, but We finally popped the case open and saw that these little plastic gears had stripped out. Yeah. And so we told them, well, you know, unless you can replace the gears, uh, it's a manual telescope from here. Yeah. And uh, so they took it away. And the next year, this telescope shows up again with different people. And we asked (laughs) them, you know, it took us a while to realize it was the same telescope. And uh, we asked them, where'd you get it? And they said, goodwill. And it was like, okay, don't don't donate it to Goodwill, or we're going to see that again next year.
0: (laughs) Let Jerry jump up and down in it for a few minutes.
1: (laughs) I I do plan to write an article. uh, My my astronomer's workbench article is basically on retrofitting uh, scopes and building things, and so I do plan to write an article on what to do when the electronics or the gearing dies in your go-to telescope. Um, you know, they still make fine manual telescopes, but you've got to be able to get in there and release the clutches and, uh, mm. you know, design it as an altaz telescope. So uh, that's a project I've got. You know, I'm kind of waiting for a broken altaz uh, telescope so that I can actually do it and take some pictures while I'm doing it. Uh, but that will ultimately become a column, I,
0: I hope. Cool. Well, that sounds good. I like that story. Let's talk about your writing for uh, for a few minutes before we get on to the telescope making. Listeners might be interested in your science fiction story because, or your stories, because many of our listeners are science fiction fans. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about this uh, writing outlet for those that might be interested.
1: Sure, sure. Um, you know, it's funny. I've wanted to be a writer pretty much all my life. Um and in fact, my mom used to tell a story about when I was uh, about five years old, you know, I had one of those big fat pencils the size of your thumb. And, uh, you know, we call them big chief tablets, right? A yeah. pad. And I was scribbling something and mom said, well, you're going to be a writer someday. And I said to my mother, I already am. she saved some of my early work and it was all science fiction you know i i wrote about going to the moon and uh, meeting up with moon aliens and (laughs) and uh, going to war with the aliens and all that stuff you know um illustrated of course in my you know five or six year old style uh so yeah i've always wanted to be a science fiction writer um always you know always knew that's what I was going to be when even when i went off to college so I took English courses and writing courses and stuff. Um, and then when my wife, Kathy, um, got a job as a medical technologist, uh, you know, the pay was good enough that I could actually start writing full time and take those two or three or five years that it takes to kind of build up a reputation and, uh, you know, start actually selling stories and, and even novels. And uh, I was lucky and it only took me a year to break in. And um, I think three or four years before I was able to sell a novel. Um, but still, you know, the money was not great, but uh, it was experience and I got my name out there. And I, I like to write hard science fiction, the, the kind that has, uh, um, you know, relies pretty heavily on science. And uh, the idea is if you take the science away, the story falls apart. You know, you, you, So uh, that's the kind of story I like to write. And... Um, I, it was well-received right from the start. I, I got a lot of uh, you know, fan mail, and uh, editors liked my stuff. Um, especially the editor at Analog Magazine. Um, he would buy practically anything I sent to him. So I got to where I just would send it to Analog first because I knew he was going to buy it.
3: Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, every now and then, he would surprise me and reject something and say, okay, that's too far out. Or, or sometimes he'd say, well, we just published one by Charles Sheffield with, with the same idea. So, you know, I felt like, well, if I'm writing Charles Sheffield's caliber of story, I guess, I, you know, I'm not doing too shabby. Yeah. Um, started winning some awards, uh, won the Nebula Award one year uh, for a story that uh, um, I was pretty proud of. And that was uh, a story about the Apollo space program, the ghost of the Apollo space program. Uh, you know, ghostly Saturn V materializing at Cape Canaveral and launching. And uh, that that was it was weird. It was the first time I'd written something kind of woo woo. You know, it was not really hard science fiction at all, but uh, it was well received. Um, so what's
0: what's a good way for people to maybe take a look at a sampling of of your work and uh, where, where can they find your I guess you're writing for some for analog as well. Mm-hmm. You, you've got a Amazon book front bookstore front. Uh, right. How can they how can people find you?
1: Uh, right now, um, the Amazon, um, you know, Amazon, uh, electric, electronic books, I guess, are, uh, really the only way i okay. uh, i I'm semi-retired at this point. I don't do much in the way of writing anymore. So I haven't had a novel out in, oh gosh, a decade. So there's only one, I think one book length thing in print. And that's, uh, um, that's a collection of short stories from a company called Wheatland Press. Okay. Uh, yeah. So that can be found. Um, but also right now, uh, I think if people were to Google for it, um, they could search for my latest story that was in analog. It's called Shepherd Moons, and uh, it was put up on their website for free oh, because cool. it was uh, it was nominated for an award. Nice. And So in order to let the uh, people who are voting on the awards um, you know, have easy access to it, uh, analog put it up online. And I think it's still there. And the neat thing about that is it's an astronomy story. Oh,
3: cool! Uh,
1: it is a story of what what would happen. Uh, it was alternate universe now because I wrote it before we sent the uh, mission out to whack into an asteroid and change its orbit. Yep. And so I wrote that story uh, in December of the year before we did that. I guess we hit that asteroid in September of 2022. So I wrote it in December of 21. Because there's such a lead time in in uh, publishing, um, that that, you know you've got to be way ahead of things. So I got that uh, turned in in early January of uh, 2022, and uh, the editor, Analog, liked it well enough to kind of expedite it and got it into the September issue. And September was the month that we whacked into that asteroid with our space probe. And of course, I wrote a story about what would happen if when we are at, at the last seconds before the impact. We see that there's an alien outpost and we're just. Yes, we. we (laughs) Right, right, right. Oh, indeed. We obliterate an alien outpost and it's
3: like,
0: oops. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, guys. Didn't mean to do that. That's Um, so quintessentially human, though, right? (laughs) Oh, yeah.
1: (laughs) So, uh, you know, so obviously, you know, the rest of the story is the fallout from that. And, uh, I will just say that I like to write happy stories I don't like I don't like stories that uh, end poorly and and uh, you know have sad endings so this actually does have a very happy ending and wow. uh, and I, it, it's a really fun story and it won the uh, the readers' Choice Award for the year's best uh, novelette for in analog magazine which uh, you know that that is a really cool thing i I uh, I was very pleased that, that readers cared enough to vote for it. and That was
0: neat. Well, congratulations on that. Yeah. That's super cool. Yeah. Thank you. When when did you begin writing the Astronomer's Workbench column in Sky and Telescope? Was that, what, about 12
1: years ago or something like um, that? Not that long. I, I started long. in 2016, I think it was.
0: 2016. You had, you had yeah. articles, though, prior to that, because I remember some of these ones from five or six years before that, even.
1: Right. Um, my first one was when I came up with the concept for a trackball telescope is a ball scope that actually tracks. Yeah. And uh, so that was back when Gary Saronic was uh, editing the column. Right. And and in those days, um, you know, often as not, you could uh, write your own article. Gary would just be the editor. And so I was actually allowed to write the article myself. Right. And it was published under my name. And um, we did that several times with uh, various things that I did. And then they changed the format of the column to where Gary wrote all the columns, um, wow. you know, and so I would just provide information and Gary would write about the stuff.
3: Oh, okay. but, uh,
1: and, but then he moved on to edit a magazine called sky news. As the That's Canadian right. Magazine. And uh, so he asked me if I would uh, just take over as the writer for the column. And, uh, I tell you what man that, that was that was a day of jumping up and down for joy <laughs> uh, because I mean I love to build telescopes and I you know I'd like to think I'm a pretty good writer and I like to write yeah um, it was it's a perfect combination you, you couldn't you couldn't offer me a better job um uh, mm. so yeah I, I I thought about that for about two milliseconds and said sure, I'll do that. <laughs>
0: I have to say, and and I've I, I've I've been a long time subscriber, um, sort of off and on over many years, and I I have frequently, when when not being a subscriber, purchased the ones with your articles because there's always two things that catch my attention. One is the photos. I put a couple of the photos. I've i we don't really publish much, but I stole them and put them in our notes here just for uh, eye candy for Shane. Um, and you, you see one of these photos and you're, you're walking out of the store with that magazine. Um, and then the other is the writing, like even in our communication, you always say something that really makes you want to ask like more questions or find out more. When we were writing emails back and forth in preparation for the show, you wrote something I'm curious about. You said, I'm kind of the opposite of Mel. Regarding (laughs) referring to Mel Bartels, Uh, when it comes to observing, I'm not much interested in faint fuzzies, but I'm more into bright eye candy. I've written an observing guide called Big, Bold, Bright, and Beautiful, which, as the name suggests, focuses on the more visible and impressive objects in the night sky. I describe each object and have illustrated many of them with sketches. The book hasn't been published yet, but is under consideration. So then I was like, well, I'm asking you about this when we talk, so you have to tell us about this book. It, it, is it going to be published? Um, and and maybe a bit of uh, a tantalizing taste of what might be in this text.
1: Okay. Well, he, the the genesis of it, uh, it is in fact Mel's fault. Um, in that uh, <laughs> Mel uh when he did uh when he started building these really ultra fast telescopes like f 2.6 uh i think i think his 10 inch f 2.8 or maybe maybe it was 2.6 uh, was the first scope where he had such a wide field and he was had such a, a good light grasp that he was starting to find what he calls ifn uh inter,
0: inter- flux integrated flux nebulae
1: integrated flux nebulae that's right yeah.
0: and um uh,
1: it's, it's this uh, very kind of faint glow of yeah. uh, of gas and dust that's being yeah. illuminated by stars, just uh, the, the general glow of the Milky Way. Yeah. And uh, he was really getting deeply into this. And, um, you know, every now and then we'd be observing together and he'd call me over and say, look, I found some more IFN. And I'm looking and looking and looking. And it's like, you know, if I swing the scope back and forth, I can maybe tell that the field's yeah. getting a little brighter in one spot or the other. But... I just frankly have to tell you, that just didn't turn my crank, you know? <laughs> uh, and, uh, and I got to thinking about it. And it's like, well, what What do I like to do? And it's like, well, every time I go out, I look at things like M13, the great Hercules globular cluster, or the Andromeda galaxy, or uh, I love to split double stars, you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, stuff that when you see it, you know, you've seen it. You know, you don't ask yourself whether or not you saw it. You know that you did, and and you know not only did you see it, but you got a pretty good blast of photons. And uh, so I started making a list of things that. Uh, well, okay, just to back up a little bit, my memory is a little odd in that I. I You know, I have a mind like a steel trap sometimes, but that's also like a steel trap that's been left in the water, kind of rusty, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, as as the seasons roll around, I honestly forget what's coming up. Yeah. And you know, there'll be something I've seen a hundred times and I'll forget it's there. So I started making a list for my own use of the bright objects in the sky, the things that I enjoyed seeing. And I would actually write a little description of everything so that I would, you know, that I would know what it was that I was looking for next time it came around. And, uh, and uh, let's see, I don't remember how the sequence of events works, but I eventually wound up with enough objects. I thought, well, this could be an observing article in Sky and Telescope magazine. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I hit up uh, uh, Peter Tyson, the uh, general editor, and I. he said, yeah, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe not. Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, talked to Diana Hannah Cannon she's the uh, observing editor and uh, did and she kind of liked the idea uh, uh, so um, she said let's do let's do four articles let's do spring, summer, fall and winter um, stretch them out over the course of a couple of years because it you know, takes some time to, to do um, you know, the, the research and I, we decided I would sketch everything Okay. Um, yeah, I'm. I'm not a, much of an artist, but uh, um, I know Cindy Crash, who is a really good sketcher, and she kind of egged me on. And uh, I also I know how to use Photoshop, and so I would make these really crappy sketches at the eyepiece, and then I would use Photoshop to not just improve that sketch, but just redo it entirely. Okay. All my sketches are done entirely in Photoshop using my my field notes, basically. Um, So anyway, you know, in order to create these articles for Sky and Telescope, I actually started developing the sketches and and developing, um, um, you know, pretty good descriptions of some of the objects. And uh, every time I would go out, I would just add half a dozen more objects to the list. And um, boy, you know, before you know it, well, two or three years down the line, I've got 400 objects. Wow, that's <laughs> a good list. That's a great list. Yeah, I didn't list. know
0: there was 400 objects I would describe as bright and bold. There
1: are, you know, <laughs> I'd, I'd say at least a hundred of them are double stars. Yeah, well, uh, that's you know, yeah, that's still and, nice and I, objects. Yeah, and I didn't sketch everything. I think I've got okay. 50 sketches, maybe 60 okay. sketches. um And uh, so I kicked around the idea of self-publishing that. Um, I I did pass it out as a PDF file to several friends, and um, you know. Mixed reaction. A lot of people really thought it was great as an observing guide, and a lot of people thought it was too talky, you know, too many words. Um, <laughs> you
0: know, so it's like, yeah, well, <laughs> that's why you buy a book. Right. That's kind I of what I at, you know. That's,
1: There's I too like, many
0: words in this book, Shane. Right. i give you it know, a thumbs down.
1: <laughs> I think that was a critique of one of Mozart's concertos. It's like, oh, you know, the king said, Well, you know, too many notes. <laughs> <laughs> but uh anyway, I before I publish it myself, I thought I would uh give uh, Sky and Telescope a uh, a shot at it. Uh, and that was uh, kind of at the point where Sky and Telescope magazine was bought by the uh, American Astronomical Society. Yeah. Um, so th- th- there was kind of a hiatus there. Well, anyway, they're back to maybe publishing books. They're not sure if they're going to do that or not.
0: Uh, I think they so, should. I
1: think, yeah, I
0: think they should too. And I think they, they should start with my book. I think, yes. no, I, I think they should. I think this is because I think this is something that has appeal to everybody whether you're somebody who is relatively new to astronomy and even uh, people who are not as new to astronomy may- maybe not Mel Bartels um mm. but but a lot of us just who like to go out um you know one of the books that I recently bought has uh like a hundred objects that are kind of in a similar vein and they they've been selling a lot um of that text and certainly uh I've bought it. I'm a bit of a bibliophile myself, and lots of our listeners are as well. If that does come out, uh, I will buy a copy and give my unbiased review, regardless of how many uh, words are in the text. Oh, very good. (laughs) (laughs) Glad to hear that.
1: Well, the thing is, I actually use it myself when I go out. That was its original purpose, and that's what I actually use it for, is... uh, on any random night, I'll go out and uh, it's keyed to the uh, pocket sky atlas. Uh, uh, So, you know, I look and see what's going to be high in the sky that night. And I turn to that page in my big, bold, bright and beautiful. And then I just kind of run through the list and and look for whatever objects I think are going to be cool at night.
0: That's really that's really neat because that's sort of a similar vein of what uh, Robert Burnham Jr. did with Burnham's Celestial Handbook, where where he was compiling stuff in many ways for his own observing. But when you do that, it it sort of becomes ultimately useful to to any observer, right?
1: Yeah, and that, that's the thing I, I felt like if I made it useful for myself, then it would be useful, hopefully, for newcomers who'd never seen these objects before, but also for people who had been around for a while. Cause I've been doing this for 20 years now. Yeah. And, uh, and yet I still, I still go for these objects more than the, uh, more than the really faint stuff. And, uh, you know, it's just a really good list. I think, you know, in my humble opinion, uh, it's a good list of uh, the more or less, uh, eye candy. And I'm sure I've missed a lot of stuff. You know, I, I could probably do seven or 800 objects if I did them all. Yeah. But, uh, and I haven't got the Southern Sky. That'll that, that be volume two if I can actually spend <laughs> a year or two in Australia.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. I, you know, the, I like the go ahead, Shane. I was just going to say the other side of this is, uh, I remember, I think I was at the, uh, the Saskatchewan summer star party and, uh, one of my observing friends was observing objects in the Herschel 400. Okay. And I said, uh, oh, you know, how is it? I'm into galaxies. And he said, well, I got one here. Have a look. And I took a look. I'm like, oh, that's pretty faint. He's like, Yeah. They all are. They all look Mm. like
3: that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) One of my observing companions is very, very uh, much into deep sky objects. And, uh, you know, he's looking for these IG, you know, IC galaxies and PGC galaxies. And, uh, you know, I like the Yankees chain by whenever I go out in the spring or early summer, I'll look for Hogue's object. It's that uh, oh yeah, c- that
0: circular galaxy. That circle with the thing right? in the middle. Yeah, it's yeah. it's
1: fourteenth uh, magnitude, maybe, but the surface brightness is like nineteenth or twentieth. <laughs> <it is> <laughs> It's all I can do to even detect a photon or two from it in my 20 inch yeah. telescope. In the
0: 20 inch. Yeah. You know,
1: so, you know, Andy's looking for Hickson galaxies and I'm looking for Hoag's object. It's like, hi, I've got a fainter object than you do. So, there. <laughs> 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 uh, but, you know, generally, you know, uh, you know, he's finding galaxies and I'm finding M5 for the 2000th time and, uh, you know, Actually, looking for variable stars in M5. That's something uh, neat. That's something that geeks can do on bright objects. (laughs) And uh, you know, all together, it just kind of it came together piece at a time until uh, you know one day I set it up in the driveway and started tweaking the mirrors so that the two images would merge, and. Man, M thirteen came over in stereo, <laughs> and, <laughs> and yeah, suddenly it was it was worth every minute that I put oh, into yeah. it. <laughs> yeah,
2: I can only I can only imagine. Is it is it different, Jerry? Like you know, because how you, I guess, put your eye to the telescope is different, right? You're sort of at the front of the telescope where the mm-hmm. light's entering. So mm-hmm. when you're trying to find an object, is it different to move this telescope, or does does it just kind of seem normal to you and and almost like any other scope
1: well the cool thing about this is that the uh, the binoscope inverts everything up; it makes everything upside down but it's uh okay left right mm-hmm. but because you're looking down into it and you're looking the telescope is looking over your shoulders at what's behind you it feels exactly the same as moving a dobsonian telescope around the image oh, wow. goes in the image goes in exactly the same way. It's just it's okay. looking over your shoulder instead of out in front of you.
3: Hmm.
1: And uh, so it's, it's totally intuitive. Okay. Um, when you're star hopping, though, you have to, you have to invert your map upside down. Uh, right. But you can't invert it. You can't just, like, turn it 180 degrees the way you do with a dog. So I've learned um, when I'm using that scope, I actually use uh, Sky Safari and I, I flip the screen upside down, uh, there's a control that does that. Mm-hmm. And so that way I can use the, the um, planetarium program. It will match what I see in the eyepieces, and I can still star hop my way to an object.
2: No, right on.
1: But it's really intuitive, actually, to move one of these, rever- it's kind of we call them a reverse binocular because it's looking over your shoulders.
2: Hmm. I've always been intrigued by these Bino-Dobsonian telescopes just because of the aperture (laughs) and then using two eyes. uh, Wow. Uh, Very, very awesome design. I love this.
1: Well, there's a a thing that we call the binocular summing factor. And, you you know, you can argue all day long about what the actual number is, but it seems like the binocular scope, uh, like a 12-inch binocular scope, is about the equivalent of maybe an 18-inch single-scope. In terms of what you can see because you're using both eyes and your brain is doing a lot of image processing that doesn't happen when you just use one eye mm-hmm. um so yeah you know I, I can still see a little bit deeper with my 20 inch scope than i can with the 12 inch bino but um you know i think the 12 inch bino sees deeper than like a 16 inch scope mm-hmm. um and uh you know and and then there's that that whole stereo thing you know you look at the moon and it looks like it's about five feet out in front of you. And it looks like you reach out and touch it and it would be round. You know, it doesn't look like a flat thing. It's a round rock
0: with things on it, you know? And, and nobody had to sand that.
1: No, no, no <laughs> sanding. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, and there's the comfort factor too of using two eyes, which is why I've become a big fan of vinyl viewing. Um, it just, it, it, I find I can just look at an object for hours if right. I want Whereas right. when I'm using one eye, I need to take breaks, and it it I just find it fatiguing sometimes using one eye, so uh I love this
1: me too. and you know the weird thing with me when i i'm I'm pretty much right eye dominant, so when I observe with a monoscope, I'm using my right eye, my left eye begins to itch, and it starts to itch just uncontrollably. And it's mm-hmm. one of those weird physiological things. Like, I have no idea why it does that, but it <laughs> drives me nuts. And so there are some nights I take the binoscope out just because I don't want my eye itching. <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah.
1: yeah. And it, it it takes longer to set up and tear down, I have to say. It's a 20-minute job on, mm-hmm. on each end of the evening. But, you know, it is so worth it. I mean, that, mm-hmm. first, that first look at any object
0: through the binoscope, it's like, oh, yeah, that's why I did this.
2: yeah that's great
0: please be sure to write us with your show ideas, questions and comments to actualastronomy at gmail.com
2: thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show if you are interested in more information would like to contact us or if you would like to support the podcast check out our website actualastronomy.com